had so much. Oh, you know what we have to talk about? And this is important. Okay. Do you remember in the very early episodes when we talked about um, Once Upon a Time when wishing was still effective? Yeah. And I said the first one he uses in a story wins. Yeah. And then I used it in my Sleeping Beauty story and I won and we never discussed it. Yeah. I need more accolades because I definitely won. And <laughs> we didn't talk about what you would win, though. Just the best. You just win being the best. I just okay. need words of praise. <laughs> dear, dear Rowan, you are a goddess among men, a scholar, <laughs> and a wise, wise, beautiful, intelligent, and incredible woman to whom I both physically and emotionally look up to. Hmm. Wow, that was almost enough. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud that I got most of the way there. Since we've started this podcast, I think I've used the phrase God among men about 200% more. I have become, I mean, I already was. I I already was, but I am now very visibly that person that can bring up mythology With even the slightest prompting. You know what I learned from doing this podcast? What? My mom and her sisters, who are all listeners, which I very much appreciate, so hi if you're listening, they don't really like mythology. They were surprised that we are doing a podcast about mythology. I, first of all, I think this solidifies my high school belief that what happens when a bunch of high schoolers get together and hang out in the bedroom with the door closed, giggling about whatever is on the computer. Like, that's secret, secret, sacred space, clearly, because no one in your whole family knew that we were gathered around the computer being like, "Mm, spooky ghost stories. (laughs) I'm consistently surprised by what I don't know. Just me too, especially talking to Tim, who majored in history and is so we have Tim and Lisa who are both ready and willing and excited to jump in and tell stories. Would you say that they're willing and fable? They're willing and fable to come in and tell. I I was going to make that fun. And I was like, Rowan's going to make fun of me if I make that. No, Rowan's going to make that pun for you. Thank you. This is why we're doing a podcast together. (laughs) But they are very excited and would love to come in and tell stories. And Tim wants to be a a research assistant and help with research. And Lisa wants to talk about her extensive knowledge about Arthurian legends. So it's cool to see the people within our inner circle re kind of reinvigorating their love of story. Listen, Tim, you're hired because I just fall down the largest rabbit holes when I'm researching. But also, I think I'd be bummed out to not be falling down rabbit holes while researching, so. Yeah, I really enjoy researching. I also really enjoy recording. And I really enjoy editing. And also, it all overwhelms me. Oh, for sure. Strongly disagree on the editing front, though. (laughs) Not a huge fan. I am sorry that the way that I have my phone set up right now, you only see my bangs. Tracy, for most of your life, all I've ever seen are your bangs. (laughs) So I just wanted to apologize for that one. Um, I am going to invest in an iPhone tripod that I can angle. Get the one with the bendy legs. They're amazing. 
There's a million different brands, but the ones with the bandy legs where in the video they're like, this one can wrap its legs around a tree. That's stupid, but that's the one you want. I think it's called Gorilla Grip. Uh, yeah, that's the brand name, but mine is definitely not brand name. Okay, but Gorilla Grip tripods, um, please sponsor us. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Also Purple Mattress. <laughs> yeah, while you're at it, Purple Mattress, can you please sponsor us? Do we have any other requests? Blue Yeti would be great. Really appreciate that. <laughs> thistle. I want to request Thistle. I love those pre-prepared meals. They're so good and so nutritious. And they're a great way to make your day easy. <laughs> I just, I just, I really do love those. Anyway, hi, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is, as you know, the Willing and Fable podcast. We talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. In this episode, we're going to be talking to you about what happens when mortals face off with gods. Whether it be God speaking to Noah in the Bible, Arachne battling it out with Athena, or the Furies torturing terrible humans— Gods have a way of meeting up with humans and interacting with them, whether it be for good or not so good. To some, the very nature of godliness demands humanity. In various tellings around the world, gods don't exist without the humans who worship or craft their stories— In others, there is no divinity without the class of beings that doesn't possess any. You will recall my story of Noah's Ark, in which God specifically limits the expansive lifespan of his creations, an act which shows his divinity and power. There is no importance to immortality without the mortals who succumb to famine, disease, injury, thirst, and death. But of course, this is not always true. For example, the Norse pantheon of gods relies on a magical fruit of immortality to maintain their youth. Egyptian gods rarely take physical form on Earth to interact with humans at all. There are gods who have little interest in human troubles, and so engage with them as little as possible. But today, we seek the gods in conflict with we lesser beings. (laughs) So, Rowan, I didn't get a chance to look at what story you were doing this week. I told you what story I was doing so that we could avoid doing the same story. But I'm really excited to hear what you have to talk about. So tell me a story. Full confession. I picked the theme of this episode when we drafted this season's outline. I was very excited. And then when this episode rolled around, I could not decide on a story at all until last night at 11 (laughs) p.m. Oh, my God. That is stressful. I was stressed because I didn't finish my story until yesterday at noon. So no matter when I choose my story or how much prep I do in the week leading up to it, without fail... The muse will strike me the night before we record, close to midnight. I don't know why. (laughs) Those are the rules. It's when you're most powerful. 
Clearly. Uh, that's when I I feed on the insomniacs around the world to create story for you listeners. And I bring this up because my myth this week is the Lenan Shi. It is sometimes pronounced Lianan. There are other even more complicated pronunciations. But just everyone know for this episode, we're going with Lanan Shi because it is one that I heard the most and I can approximate as a non-Irish speaker. <laughs> so the Lanan Shi is so named as she is a member of the Shi. <laughs> These creatures are part of a supernatural race in Celtic mythology. Most specifically, we're going to discuss the Irish and Scottish myth. Uh, they are described as ancestors, nature spirits, goddesses and gods, and or all of the above. If you're into fantasy novels, you've probably encountered this word before, or you may be familiar with this group of people as the, quote, fair folk. A.K.A. creatures who are in every single of the books that I read. I pretty much exclusively just read, like, fantasy novels at this point. I know what I'm about. Yeah, it is very common for fantasy novels in the United States, very often YA novels, to include Celtic story. And these fair folk, most people will recognize them as fairies. But it's important to understand that fairies are not simply small, winged women with insect wings, though they certainly exist in Celtic lore in that form. The she make up a large array of creatures, which includes selkies, brownies, kelpies, the slua, the list goes on. Uh, some of the she are stunningly beautiful, others are horrifyingly ugly, but all are deadly in their own right. Though some will call them the good neighbors to avoid using their real names, they are a tricky and particular group and they might take a liking to a human just as easily as take offense. The she are said to live in underground mounds. These mounds in Irish are called the she, so they are the people of the mounds. They are sometimes said to come from across the Western Sea or described as living in a plane all their own known as the Otherworld. That's something that is both a realm for deities and possibly the dead. Their retreat from the mortal world is a fascinating story for another day, but know that in most Celtic lore, it is not a complete separation from humanity. Many of the she exist very presently in nature, making homes in trees, fairy rings, rivers, etc. Like many pantheons of story, there are beings of lesser and greater power among this distinctive and magically characterized group. That's the thing. The Celtic pantheon of creatures have a power that is unconsciously associated or outright called magic. While Greek stories might associate magic with lesser practitioners only, think of Circe on her island, the idea of magic is often carried up to the highest ranking deities in Celtic lore, 
This can sometimes be used as a tool to group Celtic myths and tales in with magical children's literature. Harry Potter and their wands comes to mind. It's important to remember, however, that the types of wood used to craft each wand in Harry Potter is in many ways pulled from a long-standing Celtic tradition rather than choosing to simplify an ancient tradition of story to fit an idea of, quote, childishness. So, by that token, you need to understand that the Shi are considered the later literary evolution of the Tuatudanin, or the people of the goddess Danu. I've heard it pronounced Tuatudanan. That's what I've heard, and I'm assuming you've looked it up and heard Tuatudanan. We're keeping both in because I have heard both. Yeah. And I would say that the pronunciation that I have heard is probably most often kind of like Americanized. Mm. Um, I listened to a video of a lovely Irish man saying it, and I believe that he may have said it to a Dedanin to make himself more easily understood by folks like me. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've heard it both ways, so people should know that it could be both ways. Or maybe Tracy's is right and mine is just... I think I already had it wrong. I think I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable for... I think it's Tuatha de Danan. Like, the emphasis is on the Dan. Irish intimidates me as something that I would have to say on a podcast. I just think it is the most beautiful, though. I, I just watch videos of people pronouncing things in Irish and explaining it, like, for fun, because it's so beautiful. Oh, yeah, I'm... When I went to Ireland, I just asked my my friends that were there to read every street sign to me, which is so silly. <laughs> and they were very kind friends to do that for me. So, yeah, my Irish is is lacking, to say the least. Anyway, back to it. Um, Tuatha de Danann, Tua de Danann, however we want to say it. Um... There is some debate about the origin to the reference of the goddess Danu, which scholars have argued for a while, um, but for the sake of our story, I think it's important to recognize that the Tua de Danan are considered a, quote, tribe of gods in their own right, and their pantheon predates Christianity throughout the Celtic world. Ireland, a location of many Celtic stories, has no formal, quote, creation myth, and the Tuatudanin are the fifth race of invaders that came to the land that had already existed. Tracy, do you remember when I spoke about euhemerism in a past episode? I do, but please don't ask me to define it again. No, 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 no. (laughs) So if you go back and listen, you'll get a more extensive understanding, but euhemerism is a phrase that is often used to describe when people take a religion or a practice from one culture and try to simplify it and translate it into a historical context as a means of stripping divinity away from religious practice. That is a simplification. It is often surrounded by very complicated 
cultural and historical elements. But a lot of Celtic mythology was recorded by Christian monks. So they modified it to their own needs, often depicting the Tuatudanan as kings, queens, and heroes of the distant past, specifically associating their supernatural ability with mortality. Sometimes these beings were even grouped with the more Christian notion of angels. This idea is not entirely clear-cut, as the Tuatudanan have many roles within Irish Celtic storytelling, but the historical impact cannot and should not be ignored. I read, actually, that these divine beings were once only referred to as the Tua Dei, but after Irish monks used that phrase, quote, people of God, to also refer to the Israelites, writers had to extend the name to Tua De Danan to specifically describe the followers, the gods, who followed the goddess Danu. It was writers that have transformed the primarily oral tradition of the Celts. To quote History.com, the Celts were a collection of tribes with origins in Central Europe that shared a similar language, religious beliefs, traditions, and culture. It is believed that the Celtic culture started to evolve as early as 1200 B.C., The Celts spread throughout Western Europe, including Britain, Ireland, France, and Spain. In the first century BC, Roman armies led by Julius Caesar wiped out thousands of Celts across mainland Europe, but could not invade the area that was then Britain. This is why so much Celtic culture is said to have survived in what became this geographical Celtic homeland. When Christianity came to Ireland in 432 AD, we see a very clear incorporation of Celtic traditions into what was then a new religion. At the same time, we see that influence of euhemerism. And here's where I need to talk about the Celtic revival. This involves a ton of elements of culture, but for our purposes, I bring you a Wikipedia quote. The Celtic Revival was a variety of movements and trends in the 19th and 20th centuries that saw a renewed interest in aspects of Celtic culture. Artists and writers drew on the traditions of Gaelic literature, Welsh language literature, and so-called, quote, Celtic art. There are more than a few instances of writers making debatable choices with Celtic tradition, I am looking at you, James McPherson, but our story today brings us to famed Irish poet William Butler Yeats. Touted as one of the greatest English-language poets of the 20th century, this ultra-romantic Victorian-era gentleman is often credited as one of the folks who renewed the public's interest in Celtic myths. He is also the man who is often, though not exclusively, credited with the invention of the Lenan Shi. Here's where my research gets conflicted. Some sources say the Lenan Shi existed in Irish mythology long before Yeats' appearance. 
This is backed up anecdotally, and I'm quoting the Encyclopedia Britannica here. When he met Augusta Lady Gregory, 1898, an aristocrat who was to become a playwright and his close friend, she was already collecting old stories, the lore of West Ireland. Yeats found that this lore chimed with his feeling for ancient ritual, for pagan beliefs never entirely destroyed by Christianity. He felt that if he could treat it in a strict and high style, he could create a genuine poetry while, in personal terms, moving towards his own identity. This research doesn't mean that he didn't take liberties and then throw it in a book labeled Fairy and Folktales of the Irish Peasantry. That's one of the two books included in his compilation, Fairy and Folktales of Ireland. And real quick, what the heck even is that title? (laughs) (laughs) Uh... I can't even get started unpacking that. And we have to think, is that title just propaganda to make readers think that his own literary invention came from an earlier history? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's way more interesting if it's this old myth he dug up from the ancients than if it was just something he wrote. The ancient peasants, specifically. It's very possible he made up the Lenan Shi based on his own personal needs and dark obsessions. And we cannot ignore that the collective consciousness grabbed that story associated it with Celtic lore, and held on very tight, if that is the case. So at this point, I get it. You're saying, Rowan, what on earth even is the Lenan Shi? So now I'm going to tell you the story. I read. I've been reading. I'm desperately reading because I cannot do anything else. Armed with paintbrushes of all shapes, canvases in every size, pigment of every tangible color on earth, and a few that certainly should not exist. I sit in self-imposed isolation, unable to create a single thing. And what beautifully romantic hypocrisy the tortured artist cheered on by a chorus of unrealized art in a room furnished and body fed by money derived from every source but that art. I am fraudulent in name, ideology, morality, reality, dressing the part of a successful artist, a painter of my time, time worn by lack of success and hatred for those who have it. I wrought my own soul for want of emotion to manufacture artistic vision. It gives me nothing. Still life of lemons, which lacks zest. Portrait of nude reclining with no proper form. Stormy summer coast with neither heat nor tumult. Every brushstroke pierces me with an imagined inadequacy until I practice so little that it becomes true inadequacy. So I read, the great tortured souls that came before me, Keats, 
Plath, Van Gogh, Hemingway, Cobain, and W.B. Yeats. I sit by my window, worn chair and $2 used book, glaring at the world through the unclean apartment glass. He writes, This spirit seeks the love of men. If they refuse, she is their slave. If they consent, they are hers, and can only escape by finding one to take their place. Her lovers waste away, for she lives on their life. Most of the Gaelic poets, down to quite recent times, have had a Lianxi, for she gives inspiration to her slaves and is indeed the Gaelic muse, this malignant fairy. Her lovers, the Gaelic poets, died young. She grew restless and carried them away to other worlds, for death does not destroy her power. The idea rings in my head like a bell, a siren warning me away or an alarm waking me up. It's so appealing, this creature of vampiric, sensual, more than human. Beautifully stunning, every artist into feverish subjugation to both art and... Hmm. I go immediately to the nearest canvas, squeezing a mass of the nearest pigment, a soft umber that begun separating from disuse, and hold a narrow brush to the white weave. The frame stares at me in mockery. No creation springs from my hand. The education for which I paid dearly will not couch my lack of will. And so it goes on like this for weeks. Longer, I think. The bills, the commute, the gas I need to get, the packages I need to ship, the messages I need to send pull me at an imperceptibly slow expansion away from the work I'd set out to do. Until maybe a year has passed. The canvases are just as empty and my goals just as far-reaching. When I sit again in my chair by the window and read Yeats... Most of the Gaelic poets, down to quite recent times, have had a Lianxi, for she gives inspiration. She gives them inspiration. I am wine-drunk by the time I bound from my chair, having read the phrase through to twilight. My subsequent actions are based on years of games and fantasy paint vibrant crimson, and a massive brush to scour out a pentagram, a pentacle. I, I can't remember what it ought to be called, and in fact have very little knowledge of its meaning, let alone its use for my ends. And I have ends. To call forth succubus fay, entrap her, and demand, demand inspiration for my potential works, waiting and left undone, the rules... As long as I refuse her, she cannot refuse me. Wine in a coffee mug and a few stale Girl Scout cookies held as an offering. 
I, I think I read that you need those for rituals, at least for Santa Claus. I, I stand in the center of my massive circle, the paint seeping into the laminate floor, and upon seeing my own footprint near the southmost edge, I begin to question my actions. But what is a tortured artist without a bit of a mess? I console myself. Standing in the midst of my offering in silence, my own embarrassment presses against me. I whisper as quietly and sacredly as I can sort through wine-numbed lips. Lenanshi. Nothing. Not a dust mote in the air moves at my utterance. Turning in a circle, I try again. I call you, Lenanshi. I call you to make me a great artist. I groan then at my own childishness. Magic, succubi, artist. <laughs> but when I turn back to the window, she is there. Enrobed in nothing but silvery window light, she lounges in my chair, smirking darkened lips and wrapping raven-black coils around her long fingers. Her teeth gleam, moonbeams of impossible sharpness, breasts of impossible fullness, form of maddening perfection. The woman's two large eyes blink at me leisurely, and her voice is husky. What are you doing? I feel myself shrink under her scrutiny. Everything feels so instantly foolish, and I scramble to put words into sentences. I, I was calling you. Were you now? She rises from the chair flowing like the storm clouds to her full height. Don't stay where you are. I try to command her like a dog as she strides toward the circle, which surely must protect me. I, I read that somewhere or saw it once, but she's not interested in my voice. I wonder if it even sounds like more than an insect's buzz as she ripples forward. At the edge of my messily painted star, she stops, blinks at me grinning, and reaches out slowly, so slowly, to pluck a shortbread cookie from the plate in my one hand. She wrinkles her wide, perfect button nose at the taste and pulls the coffee mug of wine from my other hand. She sips as she surveys the room. Come out of that mess, you look foolish. I do. Just like that, no particular commanding in her voice, just the truth in progress. She spoke, and so I will fulfill her telling into reality. You call yourself artist, she croons. I do. I see no art here. I do. Now I know I'm fawning over her, nearly whimpering like a puppy. She laughs like a chorus of bells at dawn. 
All right, mortal. Then we will make a deal. I will make you a famous artist. Successful even in your lifetime, you lucky thing. I will live with you as your muse and infuse divinity into your every stroke. And then, when you are at your absolute peak, creating with such enchantment the world turns its eyes on you, then you will come away with me to the other world, where you will know me forever. I can feel it. This is the moment that I must say no. I must refuse her to keep her by my side, indebted to me. But how could I? And what if that refusal kept her here, sure, but still left me without the will to paint, to be constantly inspired yet lack the motivation to turn she, glorious she, into a manifesto of what beauty truly is? I cannot refuse her, and she knows. Like a predator, I see her eyes flash in excitement and hunger. So I love her all the more. Her plans for my demise snake between her very eyelashes and make me want to look on her forever. How will you, I stammer, thinking of death, Hmm. It is not for the artist to understand the muse. What ritual have you not performed to call forth my power? And yet you fail at every turn. Your drink, your distraction, none of it calls to me but your life. I demand your life for your art, and you should be so lucky. I give it freely, hour after hour of my very life force spent on toiling. I agree to her contract, and so begin to worship at my own altar, call myself the god artist, and pay penance to the greater goddess muse. Lenon she, who bathes me in time and cleverness, knowledge, stamina, and relevance, I give it all up to kiss her and so kiss the canvas. Friendships, family, food, all of it feels like such a small sacrifice at first. A balance easily struck and a payment equal to the reward. There are times that I must work and times that I may not. But it all amounts to the goal. She promised success in my lifetime. My Lenon she sits immobile for hours as I paint her. She whispers in my ears, softly crooning through my sweat and fatigue, You will be great. This work will be great. And if it's not, better for us. We'll laugh at the lesson and paint it over and start again. We'll never stop, you and I. My time with her is rapturous. I am able to pay my bills with my artwork. My work is hung in famous galleries, sold for 
vast sums at high auctions. People even recognize me on the street after a few articles appear in newspapers and magazines. I am getting thin. I am always tired. I am obsessively focused on creation and will often find that I've gone days without even eating. I can't remember the time water has last passed my lips. I don't know if I sleep or wake. Lenon, she only grows. She is more divine, more golden, more charming and vibrant with each passing moment that I fade to gray. I trade my color for hers. Of course, I know. How could I not that I am feeding my muse every ounce of myself? But how could I resist? The day she comes to end my life, I know why it is marked. I've recently sold a three-piece collection to a museum for a shocking sum. The whole situation shocks me. Over the last days, I've received calls for private commissions, interviews, appearances. It's never-ending. Except that it is. There could not possibly be another divine stroke of the brush within my wasted form. I have given away every moment of a long and leisurely life, comfortable years of inadequacy and wanting, maybe even happiness, for a fast flash of brilliance and maybe remembrance when I'm gone. She knows, and I know, and I cannot regret it. I stand in the middle of that same simple studio from which I called her. <laughs> we agreed never to give it up, despite the wealth. That self-same altar to my own potential, written in crimson desperation. Lenanshi looks at me with smiling brilliance. Here it began, and here it will end. That was such a cool telling of that. That was so different than any way either of us have told stories before. And oh my God, I could see you just dripping out of every part of that story. It had the feeling of someone <laughs> writing it at three in the morning, deeply frustrated. And, and <laughs> it was, oh my God, that was so good. Yeah, uh, if I had to pick a god from any pantheon of story to sell my life to, it will would always be Linanshi. Crafted by Yeats or crafted in the annals of history, the muse is an idea that has been very present in my upbringing and... Lenanshi is a name that I was, you know, fairly familiar with. So I love this story and I cannot believe it took me so long to realize that I could use it for this episode. Right. It's so funny how paralyzed you get when you have to pick a story. Um, you feel like 
every story you've ever heard of is just outside your grasp and you can't remember it. At least I do. Oh, yeah, definitely. And because this story has A, potentially come from an oral tradition and B, potentially been crafted by a reasonably modern writer for the purposes of seeming ancient, I felt that there was a little bit of room to tell kind of a modern telling of it. Um, in, in my parents' studio, the muse is not something that just comes and strikes you. You don't just like wait and hope that she, let's say she, finds you. You work and you work and you work. And when she finally shows up, you beat her into submission and tie her to the chair and say, (laughs) you better stick around here until I figure out what the heck I'm doing with my art and only then will I let you go. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I wanted this version of the Linan Shi to involve uh, very specifically a trade of life for goals. And what made you want to go the route of writing it in first person? Because that's something we haven't done before. No. I wanted to write it in first person because... I think because that that feels like a reckoning that I sometimes have with myself, so it it felt like a, a personal story in some ways. Yeah, I'm not I'm not painting crimson pentacles on the floor, but I think that the the toiling hours when you feel that you're not reaching this mystery of potential is is a very present mythology in my own brain. Oh, you could feel it. It just felt like a very personal story. At the time that I was writing it, you know, he's offering her Girl Scout cookies and I'm drinking La Croix and eating craisins and peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of just shuffling around my apartment in the most stereotypical fashion. I wanted to poke fun at that idea of the tortured artist because it is both such a pretentious fedora of a of a stereotype and also you know it's 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 a the real thing <laughs> it exists um and i i also want to note while we're talking about kind of my telling of it um the Linanshi exists in part in a lot of modern stories. And there is a Korean comic book series by Park Sang Sun called The Tarot Cafe that I read when I was younger. I still have all of the books. And there is a chapter in one of the books with the Linanshi. And it is one of my favorite versions of this myth and it very much inspires how I view this character and it will be linked in the show notes but uh, that comic book series tackles mythologies in one of the most gorgeous ways and I think makes them very tangible to modern humans. 
you're inspiring me to want to read it. I'm tempted. I have all the books. I wish they weren't across the country from you. Just move back to the East Coast. You know, there's nothing, you know, well, you don't need to live in L.A. to do acting. So there's no real reason to be out there. Well, I sold my soul to <laughs> Lenanchi, but by Lenanchi, I mean Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, I want to quickly say that the research that I found that asserted that this figure has existed for a lot longer in Celtic mythology went on to say that her association with succubi and vampirism comes from Yeats or Christianity or Christianity, pardon me, or both. Um, I've read that Lenan is a translation of the words sweetheart or even concubine. Oh. Not sure how I feel about that research that I found. I'm not, I cannot confirm how accurate it is, unfortunately. Um, I've also read that Lenanshi means fairy mistress or fairy sweetheart. I mean, that makes sense given the nature of her character. The, the research that I was able to uncover about this topic is really interesting. There's a lot of blogging and kind of neo-paganism that speaks about her. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, no, not a lot. There's a couple people who are, you know, trying to debunk that and talk about Yates creating her. And then I also found a a thesis written by a student in the late 60s, early 70s, I want to say it was maybe 1969, mm. about Yeats and the me- dark muse, the Lenanshi. I wish I could link that, but I uncovered it and then lost the link and could never find it again. So maybe it was given to me by the muse and then taken away. <laughs> um, but, you know, this topic in modern consciousness is not new and as an artist a practicing human artist we love to talk about the muse so this is a version of the muse i really loved this telling i loved how personal it felt while still giving you the information about the story you were trying to tell that was it was just so cool I don't care if anyone else liked it. I really loved that. Thank you. I hope everybody can just imagine this gorgeous, brilliant woman appearing in their apartment in the wee hours to give them their greatest goal at, of course, immense personal cost. (laughs) (laughs) Eh, I mean, you know, win some, lose some. Is there something, it doesn't have to be creative, that you would give your life force to achieve a personal goal. You can't say, like, curing world hunger or no, yeah, eliminating know, world I cancer. Know. It has to be, like, an individually accomplishable thing. My problem is that I don't have strong ambitions towards anything. I'm not apathetic to my own success. I do work hard towards it. But I even get the same thing at work where they're like, don't you want to be an executive? I'm like, no. I just want to like my job and feel like I'm making a difference. Um, 
I wouldn't call that a problem. I think that there are so many different roads to happiness. Happiness is the goal, right? Yeah. I just don't... I guess, yeah, I guess to be truly, deeply happy, but I don't even know what that looks like or what would, you know, make that true. So, ah, I don't have a good answer. And I should. Yeah, I don't think... I don't think all humans have that answer. I would venture to say most, but mm, I don't know that many humans. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Only a certain number. Do you have anything? I can't stop. Th- oh, for sure. Yeah. I am totally the person that upon being visited by a naked fairy would take that agreement. And I wouldn't even go, I shouldn't do this. I'm selling my soul. This is going to go badly for me in the end. I would go, absolutely. I want to make my art. I want to make my art. I want to make my art. (laughs) That would, I am, I am exactly that person that would, I wouldn't say fall for it. I knowingly go into it. You're the main character of the story you wrote. Well, yeah, that I mean, that is why that I chose why I wanted to tell it this way, because because I can, (laughs) Um, you know, there are a lot of myths and stories that you can say, wow, that is a human experience that is not mine. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a human experience that is my human experience, except that Girl Scout cookies. Um, (laughs) There's never been a stale Girl Scout cookie in my apartment. They don't last that long. Um, I was thinking a lot about the myth of Gorlal from yeah. our first episode. And how you were saying, oh, it's such a bummer that he was stupid and gave up. Listen, he <laughs> gave up his life. And I was like, but what if he did it on See, purpose? that's much more interesting. <laughs> Giving it up on purpose so that you can be like, I died at my peak is much more interesting. But at that point, why would you go through all the work to make nine versions of yourself? Just saying, it's a lot of work Listen, to get to the same end result. I, I want to be clear that I am not advocating that anyone should seek to die at their peak. That is not the theme of this episode. The idea no. is more, A, framed in a mythological story sense, so everything's very dramatic. But B, that there is this... Idea, and I I will say I subscribe to it, that you basically the only thing you can really spend is your time. That is all you have. Your time becomes money or it becomes friendships or it becomes work or it becomes rest or it becomes Mm -hmm. dinner, you know. So this is a very dramatized way of speaking about spending your human lifetime. There's also, I know a lot of people talk about this and look at it in a lot of different ways, and I won't even get into the psychology element, but some people think of inspiration and creativity as this mass cosmic thing that people could dip their hands into and pull from a universe of creativity that any person could access, and other people look at it as a very personal experience. I'm definitely a ladder of the latter opinion. I think it's very personal and you have to find what inspires you because it doesn't inspire everyone else. I am also team ladder experience, but I do like the idea of 
creativity or brilliance or inspiration or in the modern sense relevance Mm. being turned into a humanoid creature oh definitely i'm always that person of two minds one of the reality of i think in in the real world inspiration comes from within yourself but in story it's way more interesting for it to be a cosmic figure made human in some form so there's the world we live in and the world i i wish we lived in i'm always of two minds and I won't belabor this for too long, but I do want to point out one last thing. The nature of the story of the Lenan Shi from the Yates perspective, or if we're likening her to the white goddess from Keats, it is very hypersexualized, viewed from the male perspective of women being muses that are give men creative power and i specifically did not gender the character in my story who tells it because i am very much here for a super sensual woman bestowing creativity and i don't necessarily think men have to be the only recipients no there are are versions of this story, I haven't been able to actually find the stories themselves, but I have found anecdotes that there are male Lenanshi. Interesting. But that also, the anecdotes that I found did seem to kind of support a very heteronormative view of it. Like, men get female inspiration fae and women get male inspiration fae. And See, that's boring. Just make it more interesting. Make it more fun. Hey, if you want to imagine your own version of what divine inspiration looks like, I'm not here to tell you what you want. But I am advocating that a super phenomenally gorgeous, intelligent woman, is a, she's a pretty good option. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So we've talked about gods giving mortals goodness and then killing them. Tell me about your story. So my story is actually about a, it's about a really remarkable human. Um, It's from China. So it's the story of Ho Yi. So to start, I want to apologize for my Chinese. While I did travel to China for three weeks after I graduated high school because my sister was living there at the time teaching English, um, and I picked up a not insignificant amount of Chinese, and then I took a semester of Chinese in college, uh, I haven't spoken it with any form of regularity since around 2012. This episode, like many Willing and Fable episodes, is us trying and probably failing to say words from other languages. Yep. Yep. And doing our best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because even at my best, I barely scratched the surface of the language and was often told that my accent was very American. So I still think the language is really fascinating. And I wanted to share with you a little bit about how Mandarin words are pronounced. In Mandarin, there are four tones. These tones indicate 
meaning. So Mandarin is a tonal language. So the same word in different tones can have four different meanings. Let's demonstrate this as best as my rusty American accented voice can with the word ma, M-A. The first tone is ma. You can think of having your arm flat in front of you. That word means mother. The second tone, you can take your flat arm and raise your hand upwards at an angle. This tone goes up. Ma. That means hemp. Third tone, you can take your hand and make a U shape in the air. So it goes up, then down, then up. Ma. That means horse. The last one, you can take your flat arm and put your hand down. This goes down. Ma. That is a word to scold someone. So you have ma, 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 ma. All four different words. That is why Chinese can be very difficult for English speakers to learn. That's amazing. I did not understand that in its entirety. Everyone should know that I was doing all of... (laughs) She was. It was helpful for me to make sure that my descriptions were making sense of how to hold your arm. Thank you for doing that. I knew Chinese was a tonal language, but I'd never had it explained to me in that clear detail to me as a human rather than a video. Yeah, it's helpful. The tricky part of me using ma as an example is you put ma at the end of a sentence to turn it into a question. But it is typically the one most people will use to explain the four tones. So, you know, ni hao is hello, but ni hao ma is how are you? Just an example. I have a whole sentence here in Chinese I don't need to to say and butcher um, to show different tones. But that's just, that was a really... Would you say it, though, just in case? (laughs) Just in case. You can delete it if you want to. But I want to know. 我的容关说的不太好。你好,我家水水。Rowan,你是我的朋友和我爱你。That is, I do not speak Chinese very well. Hi, I am Tracy. Rowan, you are my friend and I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Will you tell me what part of that sentence was Tracy? Tsui that's my Chinese name. So when I was in China, um, a family that my sister had gotten to know really well and was staying with. Um, the word Tracy is pretty hard for, it was pretty hard for them to pronounce any. If you notice, um, Chinese words are all single syllable. So ni is you. Um, hao is hello. So hello to you. And so Tracy with its combined consonants can be tricky. Um, and so they called me Tsui as my Chinese name. I really appreciate that you explained that to me. And all of your pictures that you've shown me from your trip to China are now contextualized in a really interesting way. <laughs> yeah. Still images don't have you trying to learn a language. <laughs> right. And it was really cool because it wasn't a touristy trip in any possible imagination. My sister was living there. So I was 17 years old when I went. I flew out by myself, met up with her in Beijing, and... Then for three weeks, we traveled all over the north of China. 
we couldn't go to the south because there was a malaria outbreak, so I didn't get to see um, anything that was in the south. But we traveled all over, and it was just the two of us. And and sometimes it was the two of us and, and her friends that she'd made. But there were days because the reason I went out was, one, I really wanted to see China. But two, she was moving back to the States. So I flew out and helped her pack up her apartment. And then we flew back together. And that was when she moved back to the United States. So there were days where she needed to pack and needed to get things done. And she was still finishing up her job as a an English teacher. And so I would spend the day with her friends who spoke Chinese, but also spoke English. Some, you know, more effectively than others. And so it was just fully, fully immersed in the Chinese language for three straight weeks, needing to kind of get by on my own in some cases. And even when it was just my sister and I, she had to do all of the speaking for us because I didn't speak any Chinese. So that was really fun. And the trip was just really cool because we did some of the touristy stuff. I saw the Great Wall. I saw the Forbidden City. Oh, I loved your pictures from the Forbidden City. Oh, it was amazing. It was it was really cool. I mean, China was a beautiful country, and the people were so friendly and lovely. And I know this was, God, like 10 years ago now, so definitely, right. definitely a different world than um, I know things in China can get a little bit tricky now with the way people think of it. But I really loved my trip, and the people I met were some of the most... <laughs> Most incredible people I'd ever met. I remember there was a girl, Mabel, who was friends with my sister. And Mabel took me out for the day multiple times to kind of entertain me as, as you know, my sister had to pack. And she told me the story of cherry blossoms and the fact that they represent strength. And then she mm-hmm. said that I reminded her of cherry blossoms. And because I loved these beautiful fans that were in this um, massage place that we went to, the next time I saw her, she showed up with a beautiful ornamental fan with cherry blossoms that I still have to this day. Yeah, you still have that. It's been decorating mm-hmm. various places that you've lived ever since. Yep, every place I've lived has had that fan hanging up. Okay, so not to be that guy, but whenever I travel around the world, one of my favorite things is trying local food wherever I am. Oh, yes, same. What was your one of your favorite foods that you tried? Okay. Two. There were two things. So the family that my sister was really close with, we went um, and visited them. So she had moved to another city, but we went to that city to visit them. And they sat us in a room and were like, sit here, watch TV, hang out with our daughter, who it was great to meet in person. I'd been Skyping with her for years at that point. And then (laughs) three generations of that family went into the kitchen and made us homemade dumplings from scratch, like entirely from scratch. It was just the most incredible experience. It was the literally 97-year-old grandmother and who we called mom and papa, um, who my sister was friends with, and then their siblings and then their daughter. And amazing. The other one was that my sister taught English. um, She taught kindergartners, which was fun. I got to go to the kindergartner class and give them all stickers. And then she also taught college students. That's a big age gap. (laughs) She taught all levels in between as well. At that time when she was leaving China, those were her two main classes. Um, So we had lunch with the college students, and they they selected foods from each of the parts of China they were from for me to try. Hands down, my favorite was this—it was just cooked sweet potatoes. 
that you quickly dipped into this hot sugar water and then took it out, and then the sugar water crystallized around the sweet potato. Oh, no. It was oh, so yes, good. Oh, yes, but oh, no. <laughs> the last thing, and I swear if any one of you can help me figure out what this is, I will be forever grateful because I've been thinking about it nonstop for 10 years. They had these sausages that they sold on the street. Just these sausages on a stick. I have a picture of me on the Great Wall holding two of them proudly because I was obsessed with them. We can post that on our Instagram. And they were like very slightly sweet almost. Okay. And they just sold, they just sold you a sausage on a stick and every restaurant had them. They were sold on the streets. I would get like a dry rub to go on it at the restaurants. And I have not been able to find an approximation in America ever since. And I think about it all the time. It's that food from the places that you would least expect it that is always it rocks your world. You know, you travel yeah. and you're like, oh, the most expensive restaurant, whatever, of course, is going to have amazing food. No, it's always the local spot. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> linguistics, food, travel, now myth. So all of this was a really fun dive back into me trying to learn how to Chinese, <laughs> how to <laughs> speak Chinese. Um, it's also meant to help the listeners understand why it's important to know tones when you're reading these stories as best you can um, and why, you know, like I said earlier, to an English speaker, Chinese can be really difficult to learn and it can sound really different. Our language is not tonally based. And so wrapping your head around one that is can be really confusing, speaking from example. So I did my best to find the pinyin, which is the English alphabet translation of the Chinese character, and it has the tone. So if you ever see um, a Chinese word with like a straight across bar or a slanting down slash, that's the pinyin. So I tried to find that for all of the words I am going to say today, but I wasn't always successful or I might have found the wrong pinyin. All right. Your Chinese lesson is over. Thank you for coming to Chinese 101. But class is, class is out of session. And it's time to talk about our main man, Ho Yi. Hello, dear friend. I'm going to tell you the story of the sun and its nine brothers and sisters and how all but one of them fell out of the sky. Long ago, long past the memory of any man or woman, the sun had many siblings. Together they went across the sky, each going one by one, slowly illuminating the earth one at a time. This was when the earth was still young, in the time of the Jade Emperor Yu Di, also known as Tiang Gong, or the Heavenly Grandfather. The Jade Emperor is the supreme ruler of heaven and was the first emperor of China and grandfather to all ten sons. But this story isn't about the Jade Emperor, not really. This story is about a man, one singular spectacular man who would be the one to take down all but one of the sons, a man who would be offered immortality and who would be betrayed by the woman he loves most. This story, dear friend, is about Ho Yi. One day, despite being told by their father that only one of them could play in the sky at a time, all ten sons decided to play at once. 
The sons were young and selfish and cared more for their own entertainment than for the care and protection of the earth. So they went out and they played and they danced and while they did, the temperature of the earth began to rise and rise and rise and soon it was unbearable. The earth was scorching hot and people began to suffer. As crops wilted under the heat, people began to faint in the streets and fall from exhaustion. Humans were weakened, and as such, monsters who hid in the shadows that no longer existed began to emerge. They hunted humans as their prey, and the humans were too weak, too exhausted to fight back. So humanity suffered. Ho-E would not stand to watch his people suffer any longer. This would not last. People would not survive if this continued much longer. So he went to the Jade Emperor and asked him to rein in his children. The Jade Emperor knew of Ho-E, as he was a famous and very skilled archer. The best among all men. That's why, when Ho-E threatened to shoot down the suns if they did not leave the sky... The Jade Emperor knew it was no empty threat. The Jade Emperor was not heartless. He cared for his grandchildren. But he also cared for the earth and the people who lived on it. So he asked Ho-E to let him reason with the sons before he took more drastic action. The Jade Emperor scolded his grandchildren. He told them that they must leave the sky, for they were destroying all that he was meant to protect. He warned them that if they did not leave, there would be dire consequences. But the sons were young and reckless and cared little for consequences as young ones often do. So they ignored their grandfather and his warning and continued to play and laugh and dance up in the sky. In fact, some say they were laughing so loudly they never even heard their grandfather's warning. They never stopped to listen to him not even when he warned that he would do what must be done to protect the earth. They would not be reasoned with, would not stop to hear the truth, and would not look upon the destruction they had wrought. So, with a heavy heart, the Jade Emperor told Ho-E to do what must be done to save humanity. Emperor Jun, son of the Jade Emperor, bestowed unto Ho-E the gift of a bow made of tiger bones and a quiver of arrows made from dragon tendons. Ho-E knew immediately that with this gift he could take down any creature foolish enough to threaten him. So he started with the monsters that were attacking humanity. One by one he slayed the creatures that dared slither from the darkness and prey upon his fellow man. Once he was finished destroying the monsters, he turned to the suns. He climbed his way to the top of a very tall mountain and took out his bow. But before he loosed his arrow upon the suns, he gave them one last chance. He called out to them, desperate to reason with them to leave the sky, asking them once again to end their merriment and do the right thing. The suns ignored him so he fired a shot. The arrow whizzed into the sky, sailing through the air and flew right past one of the suns. 
missing it. This was a warning. The sons laughed, ignoring Ho-E's attempt to intimidate them out of the sky. (laughs) Foolish man. Who was he to try to frighten them? He was a man, and they were gods. So they laughed even more, sticking out their tongues, making jokes about the foolish mortal who dared try to face them. The laughter stopped as the first sun fell, dropping to the earth as a three-legged raven. Then, one by one, each sun fell out of the sky, turning into a three-legged raven as it fell down and down and down out of the heavens. Finally, only one sun remained. Realizing the reality of the situation, the last sun fled far away from the sky, instantly plunging the earth into darkness. Where only moments before, the earth was unbearably bright and so hot it was painful to exist. Now it was dark. Dark and cold. The kind of cold that swallows you, ripping the air out of your body, leaving only a dark, frozen, miserable existence remaining. So once again, the people suffered. The Jade Emperor, fearing for the life of the last son and the existence of humanity, told Ho-E to stop. Ho-E agreed and even tried to coax the sun out of hiding, but the sun covered its ears and refused to leave its hiding place. He was too afraid of Ho-E to return to the sky. The Jade Emperor tried next, but he too failed to bring the sun back into the sky. Many, many others tried, and the people of Earth begged the sun to return, but still it refused to move. Then, the rooster climbed to the top of his roost and shouted, Brother! Brother! Over and over and over again in his shrill, loud voice, Brother! 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 This voice reached the sun and finally convinced it to come out of hiding. So the sun emerged and came to the sky, bringing light and life back to the earth, and the people rejoiced. And to this day, when the rooster crows brother in the morning, the sun rises to greet its old friend. Grateful for the deeds that he'd done for the people of the earth, Xi Wang Mu, Queen Mother of the West, gave Ho Yi a bottle of immortality. This elixir would allow Ho Yi to return to the Jade Palace as a god. The idea of obtaining immortality and godhood was exciting and incredibly tempting to Ho Yi, but he could not shake the thought of what it would mean for his wife, Chang'e. He wanted immortality, but not at the cost of leaving his beloved wife, and he couldn't bear the thought of her dying alone. So, he hid the bottle away deep inside of his house where it would be safe and he could spend the rest of his days with Chang'e. One day, Ho Yi's apprentice, Peng Meng, snuck into the house while he was away hunting. Seeing the man sneaking around, Chang'e knew he was up to no good. So she rushed into the house where she found Peng Meng about to take the elixir for himself. She ran forward and grabbed the elixir before he could get his hands on it, but he 
rushed towards her and quickly overpowered her. Chang'e soon realized that she would not be able to escape his grasp, and so she did the only thing she could think of. She drank the elixir herself. As soon as she did, she began to float away. She was a goddess now, and she was ascending to the heavens. Ho Yi desperately tried to follow his wife, but she had fled to the moon far out of his reach. Frantically, he tried to shoot her down, but arrow after arrow missed its target because deep in his heart he knew he couldn't bring down his beloved wife. So he resigned to spend the rest of his mortal life alone, staring up at the moon, his heart aching with the loss of his love. He began to fear that his wife was lonely as she floated up in the sky, so he started to leave out her favorite desserts and fruits every night in order to remind her that he loved her and she wasn't alone. This is a tradition that remains to this day during the mid-autumn festival. Some say Ho Yi died an old man alone on the earth wishing for his wife to return home. Others say he spent his life training people in the art of archery and eventually reached godhood. They say he ascended to live on the very sun that he had spared, close enough that he could once again be near his beloved Chang'e. And that is the story of Ho Yi and the Ten Sons. That myth has so many beautiful visuals. Yeah. It, there's, there's a ton of different versions. So the other most famous version of this story is where Chang'e is just a greedy woman who intentionally betrays her husband and takes the elixir and drinks it herself and then runs away from him to the moon because she is scared. But that wasn't honestly as interesting to me as the one, which is a very popular version, um, where she is defending the elixir from Peng Meng, who, interestingly, in subsequent stories, when Ho Yi wants to spread the art of archery, is also known as Feng Meng or Peng Meng or a couple other names, but there's a whole other story about Feng Meng trying desperately to kill Ho Yi and failing over and over again because he was really jealous that Ho Yi was a far better archer than he was. Um, so Feng Meng and Peng Meng kind of got brought together, and so I wanted to throw in the, the Peng Meng into this story um, to represent that character as well as the reason Chang'e took the elixir in a non-selfish way. I love imagining the sky filled with nine, sorry, ten suns. Mm-hmm. Ten dancing, laughing suns that stick their tongue out. Yeah, and scorch the earth for play, to be able to play in the sky. Mm-hmm. That's so, fr- frankly, it's just beautiful imagery. Yeah, there is some beautiful artwork of this story and some really, really old artwork. I completely forgot to write it down, but this is a really old story. Um, and there is just some in- absolutely incredible artwork. A ton of artwork of Chang'e floating away as she turns into the moon goddess. Um, and a lot of really cool traditions um, as part of the mid-autumn festival where she's most recognized. I'm really intrigued that when they were shot down, they transformed into three-legged ravens. 
Yeah. So I kept that in because some say they just fell and they died. But I saw mentioned a couple times that the sun goddess used three-legged ravens as messengers and representations of the sun. And there were a couple versions where the sons who fell down turned into three-legged ravens. So I added that in as a nod to the idea of the messengers of the sun being three-legged ravens. Ravens and crows are so prevalent throughout different mythologies in the world. And I always love that imagery. In the house I grew up in, there's crows that live in the woods. And so I'm always instantly drawn to that. But it's so fascinating to think that the sun, which we think of as being bright and full of light, transformed into a raven, which is an, you know, a dark Mm -hmm. bird by nature and kind of there's something about a fallen bird that is just so visceral. Yeah. I wanted to really emphasize how visceral it felt when reading about the suns falling down because it I couldn't find imagery of them in a more human form, but it really was the idea of them just falling out of the sky and that feeling of something that should be in the air and moving, just dropping like a stone. I'm really looking forward to a possibility of learning more about the Jade Emperor, the idea that he understands that his grandchildren need to die to save humanity. That is a very understanding god i want to know more of his stories if he's always oh there is so much to his story he's so interesting there's a ton about him so while i combined a few of my favorite details from different tellings of the story one because i liked them and two so i could incorporate as many important details from as many tellings as possible i want to remind you all that as with all stories There are many versions, and just because a story that you've heard is different than the one we've told doesn't invalidate either telling. Should we do the thing? Uh, I think it's time to do the thing. Hey, Tracy. Yes, Rowan? Tell me something good. So, I have something, you know, today as we're recording this is Father's Day. So obviously I love my father and it was so lovely to get to see him and have breakfast with him. And I saw him yesterday. But I feel like my something goods are always that I love my parents, which I do very much. Thank you, mom and dad, for everything you do for me. (laughs) (laughs) Your family is so sweet. The, The whole family dynamic in the Harrison household is just... Idyllic. I love them very much. Um, but I decided to go with the books that I'm reading. So because of quarantine, I don't know why, but I've just gotten really back into reading. And so so I'm reading two things at once. One is a book called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin DeAngelo. It is so good. It's so educational, but I also am obsessed with reading as, like, an escape. So the other book that I'm reading that I just finished and I'm picking up the second one is uh, Shadow and Bone by Lee Bardugo, who wrote one of my favorite books, The Six of Crows and the Crooked Kingdom, that Rowan recommended to me. 
And so this is her book, Shadow and Bone, I think along with The Crooked Kingdom, um, are being turned into a Netflix series. So it's really good. It's set in the same universe as The Crooked Kingdom and The Six of Crows. And I just finished the first of the three books and I really liked it. Wait, it's being turned into a Netflix series? It is. That makes me giddy. I love all of her writing. Her writing is so good. So I also picked up her most recent book called The Ninth House, which is like a urban urban horror fantasy-ish. It's not super horror, but it involves ghosts and supernatural. So it's like an urban supernatural fantasy. Um, but I lent that to my sister. So Well, now I have to buy that. I've read Shadow and Bone, I believe. It's very good. It's really good. So I really like the two books that I'm reading, one for a really fun escape and the other one for very important education. So that's my something good. We'll link to those books in our show notes so that if you're interested, you can go take a look. It's so funny. We do the same things. I also, I try to always have a a teach me something book and get me off this plane of existence book on hand at all times. (laughs) Hey, hey, Rowan. Yeah. Tell me something good. Hmm. Okay, so my something good happened to me yesterday, and it's very on theme with this episode with your last story, actually. So Tyler and I were coming back to my apartment after having been at his. One of the fun things about living separately during quarantine is we have two little environments to quarantine in. It's so important. Um, so we were coming back to my apartment and at an intersection in my neighborhood that's not very busy, there was a little crow sitting in the street and it wouldn't move, which, you know, that's never a good sign. And so we parked the car and grabbed some dish gloves and went back down. And luckily one of my neighbors had moved it into the grass, but I was really concerned about the crow because it wouldn't get up and move away from anyone it was just very it looked very dazed almost and it was kind of late in the evening and I called around to all these wildlife places and they were all closed except for a place that specializes in the rescue of ocean birds so seagulls and pelicans and what have you and the woman on the line very nicely gave me advice and we weren't sure if it was just a fledgling that you know was was Mm -hmm. totally fine but you know maybe a little dazed or if the bird actually needed help so she gave me the advice to just make sure that it was safe and wait a little bit and there were also these two other crows that were clearly hanging around and so I came back an hour later to make sure that it was still in its little safe place in the grass. And if it wasn't, we were going to gently put it in a little box, get it some water, and then bring it to the local wildlife center. But after the hour, the little crow was hopping around with its little crow friends and was fine. And that made me so happy. I know that's silly, but I was very concerned for this bird. It was probably a fledgling, and I don't know for sure, but it sounds like it was a fledgling that its parents kind of pushed it out of the nest and then were watching. And once it was okay, then, you know, it was all good. Yeah, we just weren't sure. And I'm totally that person that needs all the wild animals to be okay 
all the time. Uh, yeah. So. yeah. Especially because it was in an intersection. And even though my street isn't super busy, I did not want to see that beautiful little fluff get run over. So that made me happy. It was such a weird little moment of levity to just see the crow bopping around. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I think crows are so cool. And they're so interesting. And they're terrifyingly smart. I think they're excitingly smart. I mean, there's a crow in the wreath of our logo. We clearly love crows. I guess it's a crow. It's a crow skull, but the point gets across. We also love skulls. We we do. Two birds, one skull. Oh, good Lord. Tyler and I can't stop talking about whiskey and fable. Whiskey and fable. Have I mentioned how pro getting whiskey he is? Um, yes. Everyone, everyone who knows this is very pro 200 people subscribing so well, that we tell can... tell them to start telling their friends and then we can get whiskey. That's true. All right, everyone. We're going to wrap it up for today. But thank you for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we're doing, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.